You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Hey, everyone. You are listening to another episode of the All Things Private Practice Podcast. I am really excited to be joined today by Arielle Jordan, the visionary behind Mindset Quality. And she is a distinguished private practice owner, a PhD candidate, uh, proudly standing at the intersection of Black-owned, service-disabled, veteran-owned, and woman-owned enterprises, a EMDR, PTSD, grief and trauma expert, an author, a speaker, all of the things that I'm not going to list right now. And we are going to talk about grieving the impact of military racism and unpacking layers of loss. And I really wish we had been recording because we've been talking for like 10 minutes before it. There's so much here. And one, I just want to say how honored I am that you're here and willing and, and feeling like able and prepared to talk about something that feels heavy. Um, and yeah. I just want to really, really just set that stage. So thanks for being here. If I missed anything in your bio, please feel free to add it. And yeah, share a little bit about who you are and why this topic feels so important to you. Well, thank you for having me first off. And so I think you covered a lot of it. Uh, I'm one of the ones that cringes when you read the bio, but um, yeah, I I love I love to do EMDR therapy, and I have tried to niche a little bit more, and I tend to be drawn to veteran first responders and military community, and I also have experience working with. Uh, that community. So I think that that's where my heart goes towards and grief as well. And I've worked in other settings too, like community mental health, uh, methadone clinic, hospital settings and things like that. But private practice is really where I found that like the beauty of freedom, I can do what I want to do. And that's still new. So I'm still learning on like, what else can I do that I want to do? And how do I serve this group that does not feel draining to me? And even though the topics may be heavy, I actually enjoy uh, getting to the roots of problems and showing uh, veterans, first responders, anybody with trauma that it doesn't have to stay that way. Like we also can heal trauma. It just take strategic methods and time and then you start to see changes in your life and I think that's my favorite part I love that one thing I'll say is I don't miss waking up at three in the morning to work at the methadone clinic at 4 a.m that was horrible worst thing I've ever done in my life (laughs) I've been in for years and I do not miss that at all I, I I will say I got great experience working with all different types of people in that setting. However, I do not miss it at, at all. <laughs> the alarm would go off and I would just be like, what is happening right now? Is this real life? Oh my God, I have to go to work. I used to like mm-hmm. put my 
there against the door of my office, turn the lights off and fall asleep and then be like, <laughs> people are like banging on my door. Oh, he must be in the files room or he must be doing drug screens. I'm like, leave me alone. <laughs> I I just like in that setting, I felt like I had no life. Like I would go start, you, you have to start at five. So be there before that. And then, yeah, you get off at like two, but you're drained from all the everything that comes with the day and i was in my master's degree program too so i had no yeah. like sleep and work and school that was awful i, I don't want to diverge too much because i want to circle back to the, the important stuff here but yeah <laughs> what a horrible people will say oh you're so lucky you only you get off at two you have the whole day no your brain is and your body just shut down you're in bed by like 6 p.m you're Come. done <laughs> terrible so I so often think that our niches in our practices and our businesses and our passions are because we have a similar story, a similar version. We've experienced it. Mm -hmm. And you yourself have experienced loss and you yourself have experienced racism within the military. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like that has gone from a place of this feels really hard to talk about to a place where you're like, I want to talk about this more so that other people who have similar stories know that they're not alone. Right. Exactly. I think that when I think about the, the layers here, the, the layers of loss and grief, the layers of the military environment, the layers uh, that, you know, racism manifests there. And a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about it. And I think it's just really important because there are systemic issues still. There are still unequal opportunities and institutional betrayal. And those things have a collective impact on the BIPOC community within the military as well. So when I think about, you know, just that group, like I want to bring light to those experiences and, and, talk about it on a deeper level so that we can understand those challenges. And I applaud you for that because I think it's brave. I think it's a thing because it feels like almost like secret society. We don't, it's probably a situation where a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking out or speaking out about their experiences. So I really want to just name that. And I don't want to minimize that at all. How are you feeling as we're on air, like recording and you're talking about this and just putting this out there? Um, I feel like a little bit of excitement. Um, I'm also nervous because I am being recorded and that's just a thing. It's a thing. (laughs) It's a thing. So, but, but it's okay. Like, I feel okay. I feel like I've thought about this enough that I can talk about it. I've done EMDR work with my own therapist as well. So I feel like it's not a like a danger anymore. Like my amygdala is not screaming at me, like, don't do this. When in the past, yes, it has. It has absolutely been a fear of talking about it or a fear of even really going there. But I do feel like now it's now's the time. Why not? I love that. And you mentioned to me before we started recording, and you you also DM'd this to me that it's time for you to stop hiding. Can you tell me about that? Yes. And so the more I learn about racial trauma, I think that's the root of the the feeling for me, like that I need to hide. And 
I think that when I go back to military times, like, absolutely, I am trying my best to to just be as small as possible. And that's really not who I am. Like, I I really have a lot to offer and being quiet or hiding is it's not going to show, you know, it's not going to showcase that knowledge or that skill or that uniqueness that I need to bring to the table. And so I'm still learning, but it's great to have the opportunity to put that in practice, that exposure. Showing up is scary and showing up and talking about something that is vulnerable or has repercussions potentially is even scarier. So I want to let you guide this conversation. So tell me about what feels important to talk about when we're talking about the military, when we're talking about your own experience. Um, you can mm-hmm. go as deep as you want. Just, yeah, I would love for you to just share where, where you want to go and we can help kind of walk down that pathway together. Okay. So I guess I'll start with my personal um, connection to the theme. So a lot of spaces, and this came from one of your other talks, I was just resonating with like a lot of spaces. I'm the only uh, Black individual there. And so I related that back to my military time. So during basic training, there was everybody. Uh, I went to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and there was just a little mixture of everybody. I had Black drill sergeants. I had um, just all different types of of people, but of course I'm going to notice, like, are there any black people here? And so I was like, oh, okay, this, this is cool. I mean, I might not have had um, great experiences with all of them, but they're there representation. Right. But then when I switched over into the reserves, there was, I was the only black person at my unit in West Virginia. And immediately it felt different. It felt, I felt fear. And there was one other lady there that was Hispanic. And so we kind of connected right away because we're the only ones that are different. So there's in that unit, um, just like the microaggressions that you experience, like, oh, I know you don't want to hear this type of music. And it's like, well, how do you know what I want to hear? It will be simple stuff like that. Um I remember going to a active duty training and coming back injured, but being a black woman in the military, I felt like I had to carry my weight. I felt like I didn't want anybody to help me with anything. No, I can carry this, even though it's heavy, I don't need your help or I can put this up or I'm strong. I'm tough. And I really am, but that can be detrimental to your health sometimes. And when I was in Nevada, I tore my shoulder, but I didn't know I tore, tore my shoulder. I knew it hurt, but I carried on. Um, the mission was complete. We went back home. And so the the thing is, when you're on active duty orders um, and you get hurt, they have to take care of you. So when I came back, I said, hey, you know, I, I, it's still lingering. I did go to the hospital there. Um, they were like, oh, it's tendonitis. We'll just do a cortisone shot. You'll be good. Well, it was not tendonitis. And that cortisone shot hurt very much. And it continued to hurt. And after that, uh, we were going back home. 
And I was like, you know what? I'm really still in a lot of pain every day. And I got dismissed. And I, luckily, my dad was in Vietnam. So he was like, uh-uh, you was on active duty orders. They're going to, they need to take care of you. And so I go back and I'm like, hey, what can we do about this? And meanwhile, they're not really giving me a helpful response. I'm getting my own physical therapy because I need it. And I went to see my own orthopedic surgeon who then told me, hey, your shoulder's coming out of socket because the main ligaments in your shoulder are torn and we need to repair them. So I went ahead and got my own work done because of the pain I was experiencing. But then, like I was 17 when I joined the military, so I was very young. And my parents had to sign for me to go. And I'm learning all of these things as I go. So my credit was screwed. I'm getting all these services because I need them, but I also don't have money to pay for them. So that became, you know, an, another additional stressor. So I go back to my unit and they're like, we we can't help you, you know, the, the responses. And so my dad gave me advice to write the congressman of Virginia. And I wrote him and he, I guess it was his secretary, but his secretary responded so quickly and was like, oh, we're outraged that one of our veterans is not being helped. And so my unit got in a lot of trouble. And then they were like, well, she got unauthorized care and none of that mattered to the governor. The governor's like, my soldiers hurt, take care of her. So they had to go back and fix my credit. They had to go back and, you know, clean up a lot of stuff. And after that, they hated me. They absolutely hated me. And so that was like the first incident. And then another time I heard my sergeant use the N-word. And I was in a, like the way that the, so I was a culinary specialist. And the way that the kitchen was, there's like a window in the kitchen. So there's two separate rooms. But you can't necessarily see who's in the other room. And so I'm just in there chilling because there's nothing to do at the moment. And I hear him. He gets mad at another sergeant that is the same rank as him. And he said he was getting inworded. And I was like, "What? first of all, what does that even mean? But okay. So by then I'm like man, it sucks because I like this guy. Like he was outside of that. He was a good guy. And I saw now I'm like, do I do the equal opportunity complaint or do I let it go? But I had let so much other stuff go and they were just treating me bad. So I did the confidential EO complaint and it was like, it almost was like I wasn't taken seriously and then he, the guy came and he apologized, but his apology was, I didn't know you were in the room. I'm sorry. I didn't know you were in the room. It wasn't sorry that he said it or anything else behind it. It was, I'm sorry you heard it. And I was just like, wow. Okay. Um, well, I did all the steps that I know that you're supposed to do. And then later on, the other lady that I was close with, came up and said, um, hey, I heard what so-and-so said and that's horrible. And I'm like, how did you hear a confidential, you know, complaint? How did you hear that? And 
So it was just a mess. But I know now I can't say anything confidential because it's not confidential. And so I was like, okay, that's another, you know, incident. And then the last incident was just me being pregnant and I had a high risk pregnancy. So I couldn't show up like I was supposed to show up. And I kept getting marked unexcused. And it was just like, why are you marking me unexcused when I told you what's happening? And they're making it seem like, oh, you just don't want to come. And that wasn't it at all. And they didn't know the struggles that I was having with my pregnancy and just the things I was learning within that and also a newly wed person as well. So those unexcused absences resulted in losing my student loan repayment, which is a lot of reason why people join the military. They need help with school. So that was a mess that I don't think can be fixed. And then when my daughter, so my daughter was diagnosed with pulmonary vein stenosis three months after she was born. And before that, though, she was a preemie that was in the NICU. So I'm living the NICU life. And I realized that she has this rare disease. I Googled the disease because the doctor did not really help. The doctor was like, we'll send her home on uh, palliative care. And I looked up what palliative meant because I didn't know what it meant. But I, I realized that's like hospice. And I was like, no, I haven't done anything yet. I need to, I need other answers here. So I did uh, research and I found out Boston Children's Hospital has a trial study. So we went to Boston and again, I'm letting them know what's happening. And not one person reached out to say, are you okay? And she died two years, almost two years later. And not one person said, is everything all right? So it was just horrible the way I was treated. And then when she died, I reached out to a recruiter because I didn't know what else to do. So I my time was up. I had written a letter before that, like, hey, I need to focus on my daughter. Can I just be placed in inactive? And they did. They placed me inactive December. And then my daughter died January 29th. So then I was like, well, shit, I don't know what else to do. So can I get back in? <laughs> and it's crazy to say it, but that's all I knew. But the guy was like, yeah. Um, and I told him, I said, I don't want to be in culinary anymore. I want to do more like human resources stuff. He says, okay, well, human resources is hot. So you need, if I see a job, I need your signature so that I can go ahead and slip you in there. And I was like, okay, sure. Told him what all happened to me. I just lost my daughter, all of that. And he was like the safe person or he felt like it. He, you, he, he PCSed which is where your duty station gets moved to California from Virginia and puts me in as a culinary specialist because that was the easiest thing for him to do. And I didn't know it either. So I'm trying to get my life together. My life is falling apart. I lost my daughter in January. My father died in April, same year. And I think I separated somewhere in between there. So I was getting a divorce too. So all of this loss that I'm experiencing 
this man then put me in some unit that I have no clue. And I'm trying to get my life together. I finally decide I'm going to go back to school. So I moved to Delaware and I get a call in Delaware that next year, like specialist Jordan, why are you not reporting to duty? And I'm like, who is playing on my phone? And he was not playing on my phone. This was an actual sergeant. I hung up with him because I thought somebody was playing. And so uh, I got a letter and I was like, oh, this is official. Oh my gosh. Let me call this person back. I called them back and then I get the can't get right type of type of a uh, treatment. So I show up to Fort Belvoir now and Fort Belvoir was great. They treated me awesome after uh, afterwards. And it was interesting to see the different diversity there. Now I'm sure they have their, you know, stuff too, but that was like just looking around, I see diversity. And although at first they're giving me the side eye, like, okay, the soldier hasn't showed up for drill, but then I tell them I, I didn't know. And I tell them my story and they're like, okay, well, so they, they were listening to me. They gave me a chance. And then I was able to excel there and I started to do well. They, their kitchen wasn't functional. So I'm like, all right, what well, we need to do. I jump in, I get the catalogs, we start ordering stuff. Um, eventually we got it up to cooking and serving. And it was it was a great time, like getting it put together, being able to serve. And child time for military folks is like a great time. We We like to eat and have good food. So you make others happy. So that was that was where I was at. I was like, look, I'm going to make the best of it. But I think that experience, through that experience, I did not want to grow in the military. I, I I consider myself a high achieving person, but in that setting, I couldn't. And after everything that I went through in West Virginia, I didn't want to. And then when I got to Fort Belvoir and I started to see that I could be more, my first sergeant was Black. I was like, oh, so wait a second. And I started to think about it, but I had put in a packet before I left West Virginia to get out because of my shoulder. And this packet was lost. No one knew, no one could update me. So when I get to Fort Belvoir and I start to excel, all of a sudden the packet came up. So then I was on my way out medically. So I did medically retire, but it was just bittersweet because I knew I could, I knew I could excel. I knew I could do better but it did push me on a different path and I'm grateful for all of my experiences, but it was, it was a lot. And so that's what got me thinking about the layers of loss in this, in, in my story and also others as well. So it's complex and there's lots of discrimination. There's lots of microaggressions. There's the internal negative cognitions that we create like I'm not good enough or I can't do better. And I think that's what brought me to this topic because I was like, you know what? It's a lot. It's heavy, but it needs to be talked about. And now pause for a word from our sponsors. Most of you who are listening are probably private or group practice owners. I know how important it is to save money in your business. And I also know how important it is to have live quality, responsive customer service. That's why we switched our entire group practice 
from a well-known EHR to Therapy Notes last year. If you're coming from another EHR, Therapy Notes makes the transition incredibly easy, importing your demographic data free of charge so you can get going right away. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot.com and Google. Find out what more than 100,000 mental health professionals already know and try Therapy Notes for two months absolutely free. Just go to TherapyNotes.com and enter promo code ATPP. They also have e-prescription software available and included, meaning that you do not have to have separate platforms for your medical billers and your medication management team. This is incredibly helpful and it makes sure that everything feels streamlined. Go to TherapyNotes.com and enter promo code ATPP. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link, and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up. I really appreciate you sharing that, and I'm really, really sorry for the losses that you've experienced, and I'm just... Thank you. It feels like there was almost grief and loss as you were moving through the process of being in the military, as if like there was mm-hmm. this idea of what it could be like to be a part of this, this culture and immediately to find out like, that's not even close to the reality that I'm experiencing and yeah. so much dismissal too, in terms of advocating for yourself and what you knew you needed yet continuously being told, like you're just making more of this than what it is, or it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Yep. It makes you feel very isolated, very alienated. And that, that grief over like the loss of camaraderie and the supportive community, which is crucial for your mental well-being. And there's almost, and there's betrayal there too, of like, I'm trying to advocate for myself yet. That is being betrayed in confidence and I'm being like, ultimately forced out of this this place that I actually want to be a part of and then yeah. and then compounded with the loss of your daughter the loss of your father the loss of the the, the marriage or the partnership mm-hmm. and just trying to continuously figure out like I'm just trying to like exist here right like I'm just trying to fucking show exactly. up exactly like there's, and there's so many pieces, right? There was fear as well. My unit got deployed and I was scared to death. I was like, please don't send me to Iraq with these people because I, they're going to, they're going to get me killed. I'm going to die. Like I, I literally had the feeling of uh, I'm going to die. 
And luckily they didn't need my MOS. They didn't need a culinary specialist. So I didn't have to go. And I was so thankful because I was really afraid. And that's a real, a real fear for, for not only me, but a lot of people of color in certain places. And it doesn't, I mean, it's much better than like 1940s when they decided to integrate for the first time, but there is still, there's still some stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, and I, and obviously I can't speak to this cause I'll never, I'll, I'll never experience it. I can only experience it vicariously through like what my wife and her family and my in-laws and friends and colleagues go through despite it not being 1940, like it's 2023. So the fact mm-hmm. that this just consistently exists and it's pretty amplified with social media and the ability to just post things whenever we want, there's almost there, I have to imagine, there's grief of just being like, enough is enough. Like, what are we doing here as human beings? And yeah, yep. And I mean, the constant exposure, it, it contributes to mental health challenges. We like anxiety, depression, and PTSD, I think that's just like the common experience for BIPOC individuals navigating racism in the military. It's almost foundational, right? Of like this, of, of course, this stuff exists. Like, of course, these mental health struggles are occurring because how could they not be? Yeah. Yeah. And then like, do you keep your cultural identity? Do you tuck it away? Like, do I stay true to my roots? Do I, you know, it becomes part of the emotional landscape. I know I have, um, so I know I have lighter members in my family. I mean, I'm kind of light myself, but there's lighter people than me that could pass for white. And I remember conversations because my, my dad and my uncles and just like different members of family have been in the military, different branches. And I remember like thinking of some of the stories they were saying, like, which side do I choose? You know, if I know that black soldiers are going to get killed, do I, do I act like a white soldier? Because I know that that will save my life and I can go back home. Right. Yeah. I imagine that there's a lot of code switching that also has to happen within these these environments where you have to try to protect yourself to the best of your ability, which probably creates a massive identity crisis in a lot of ways as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then just the system, like the the system's broken. So I go to, to file the EO complaint and it's supposed to be confidential. And in the office, that's what was told to me. But then how did the other person know? Cause I didn't tell them. Right. You know, and so like there's the loss of trust in the institution that's meant to provide me protection and support. It's so compounded, like you said, layer upon layer upon layer. And you're young in this experience. And most people who mm-hmm. serve are young in these experiences. So it almost feels like you don't even have the ability to advocate for yourself. And and the student loan situation, fuck, man, like that's even worse. Like that's loss and grief too, right? So like, how do I fix this still? Like it still comes across my mind. Like how do I I actually reached out to people? They're like, well, you were marked unexcused. I'm like, but how can that not be fixed though? I know it's years later and dealing with the loss of my daughter. I 
did not self-care was not a thing like I did not care sure after that loss like it was it was heavy and so I don't think people understand that that kind of takes you offline for a bit like there are no annual doctor's appointments or dentist appointments and and all of that stuff that we do to take care of ourselves because I don't care I lost my child my only child and that's hard and then losing my father who was also a very important figure like after that I'm like what do I do how do I even pick myself up from this like there's eight months of my life that I don't even remember at all like yeah it's like a fugue state in a way because dissociation has to be the the strategy here because how could it not be um yeah yeah and so to recover from that, I think I, I think I just got curious. I think I was like, it's funny because what was it? August that I went to the Emdria conference. Cause again, I love, I love me some EMDR, but Roger Solomon is the grief guy. Like he worked with Francis Shapiro and his presentation wasn't working. And he's asked for, he's like, is anybody brave enough to, you know, volunteer. And so I raised my hand and he, then he picked me. And so he's like, you know, what's your grief story? And I don't think I realized what I was volunteering for fully. (laughs) So I had to do a whole processing at this conference in front of all these people. Um, I mean, I didn't have to, but I volunteered to. And oh my goodness, I remember just, he, he asked me like, what was he was talking about resourcing and how we can resource for EMDR and grief. And he's like, what was the point? Like everybody has a point where things had to change. Everybody has this. Um, what was yours? And mine, I remember just like looking in the mirror after about those eight months. And I was like, something's gotta be different. Like you're too and I'm talking to myself mentally, like you're too smart to just sit around and waste away what are you going to do? And it was just being very real with myself in that moment. And when he resourced that, like I'm a tough person, right? I just am. And he resourced that two little tears fell. I was like, oh my goodness. That was, it was so powerful because I felt like in my body, I felt so much um, just like being very proud of myself because I really like, it's real. I really had to pick myself up and keep going. And I turned it into, let me get my bachelor's in psychology. Let me get my master's in clinical mental health. Let me be the first person in my family to complete a PhD in counselor education, which is not quite complete yet. I'm working on my dissertation, but I'm getting there. But that was a moment for me, like, wow, I am doing it. You know, I'm not, I'm, so there was a pivotal moment. And then also with EMDR, the worst moment was going back to like the hospital room and leaving the hospital without her. That was my worst moment. By the time we got done with that EMDR session, I went back to the hospital room and instead of seeing like not being revived, like her not being revived with the CPR, I saw the support I had. And it was wild. Like I went back to the same scene and I'm now I'm seeing like how, who showed up for me in my, in my moment of, of severe pain. And so it's different. 
And that's why I believe in that modality so much because I've experienced it for myself that we we can heal these types of things. I'm getting like tearing up listening to this. So this is powerful. I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, it's tough. It is such a tough subject, but th- that is why I was like, I have to tell my story because it feels like how you reframed it before we got one here like it feels like what if you don't tell it like like now I feel like I have to tell it like if it feels like a duty almost and like going back to them army values that duty is is embedded in me so I'm just thinking about people who who are listening and people you're going to interact with as you continue to tell this story and talk about your book and host these intensives and I think this is advocacy at its truest form is to be able to kind of be with the pain and the grief and the the resilience of picking yourself up and navigating life despite these challenges and just showing up authentically and saying like, you can't be the only one who has had a similar experience, right? So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when we talk about these things, we are kind of ripping the bandaid off of some stuff. Um, and yes, you know, ripping that bandaid off hurts, but we have to hurt to heal. Mm. Ooh, that might be the title of this episode. <laughs> There's always I, a line that stays with me, so. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, because I mean, once you understand these layers of loss, I mean, it's crucial to foster empathy and and advocate for change and develop strategies to address all of these things and just to know that somebody might come in your office and talk about just one part of it and you and you don't get the full picture of everything else that may be going on underneath of that that they're they may not even ever tell you so true and that's what i've encountered a lot like working in a military hospital treating active duty soldiers there's a lot that they're not going to say because especially active duty, because they're still in, right. they're not going to say some things. And I know it was more profound to me when George Floyd got killed that this, you know, huge black first sergeant comes and sits in my office and it's like, I don't have to tell you why I'm angry. Nope. You absolutely don't. Cause I'm angry too. Right. You know, and we can share those moments because they're the fear of like documentation and, and things, especially in the hospital setting, you got to document those soap notes, like, sure. you know, and, but I'm like, I'm still trying to create that safety for you because you can still come in and you can still share your experience with me and know that it's going to be documented. Yes, but I'm also strategic with my documentation. So I, I also know the importance of you as a human and, and needing to heal and be okay. Absolutely. And it's almost that understood experience, right? Like I don't even have to say it to have it understood. Mm-hmm. Why representation, which is another topic that we were talking about. Yeah. Cause you were mentioning Micah's uh, talk at the summit that I'm hosting mm-hmm. is so important in the mental health community and at large to have people of color in these positions to have therapists of color that exist so that when people scroll through psychology today or whatever 
site they're navigating, it's not just white faces looking back at them. Yeah. And then I think one of the, another thing that I took away was like that you don't, you don't have to be scared to go in an area where there's not many of you. Like, and that's kind of been my story. Every, every agency, almost every agency that I've worked at, I'm the only black therapist or the only black clinician there or the, you know, and, and it's, and it's so noticeable to me. And I don't know if it's noticeable to them or not, but it's noticeable to me when I walk in a room and I don't see anybody else like me. And I think that when we talk about like microaggressions and things like that, there is the, am I good enough that shows up? You look at, you know, you go in a room of 50 some presidents and you're looking at the wall, you don't see a reflection of anything that represents you. So you're like, dang, can I do that? Can I be president? And I remember like even growing up, I don't think I had very many black teachers. So can I even be a teacher? Like, if I don't see it, how do I know what I can do? Absolutely. Representation is so, so important. And I've become so hypervigilant and aware, probably being married to a black woman living in the South of like, wherever Mm -hmm. we go, I always pay attention to the room. And I'm like, always try. I can never experience what she experiences, but I always try to place myself in a situation where it's like, where am I the minority? Where do I ever have to go where I feel uncomfortable or or different then and really it's not many spaces so mm-hmm. i'm just so aware of that and I, I can never imagine the reversal but one thing that comes into mind and this is just a, it's a safe space but like when i go to my in-laws for holidays i'm like i'm the only white person out of 40 people in the house i'm like okay this is a place where i can really acknowledge it but it's also a very safe place to acknowledge it too so it's just I'm glad that we're talking about this stuff. I'm glad that we have people who are wildly successful as coaches, as entrepreneurs, as podcast hosts, as therapists who are openly talking about this and and showing up and having this representation because then children, teenagers, young adults who are looking out and saying, other people who look like me are doing these things. And I think this is so, so important. Yeah. And I think as you were talking, I was just thinking about like, military community a lot of times they don't even want to talk to you unless you're part of the community like so I and even working in the methadone clinic I remember being judged like well how are you gonna help me if you've never been addicted to anything and so then I would I would fight with like how much to self-disclose because in that community you have to be careful because it might be thrown right back at you so I would craft a response and I would say you know I don't deal with addiction every day you're right however I deal with grief every day I deal with waking up in the morning without my child and that is an everyday struggle and the only difference between me and you is that I made a different choice and we could easily be sitting in different seats had I not made a different choice right because we all try to numb or soothe our pain if we don't know how to to take care of it properly And so that's why I'm here to help you. And then that would be my little speech and they would be like, oh, so maybe you can help me. Well, let me, let me, okay, let's work together now rather than against each other. But it's amazing the power of just openness and vulnerability because it's, we're in a position, profession, professionally where it's about relationship building. It's about relational work. I don't think we can get there without being open and being vulnerable and being real. 
And I, I, I mean, I have experienced addiction myself as a former gambling addict. So, and I, I do think the addiction community, especially at large, really wants to know if you get it. Like that's like mm-hmm. one of the first questions they ask you in every single session. Right. And I get that because I know what it's like to sit on the other side of it to say like, I feel so misunderstood and I feel so shameful and I feel so stigmatized. And I think that's why I always talk about accessibility being relatability and being mm-hmm. able to be relatable, especially in this line of work. Because yeah. if you can share a little bit of your story, that can have this profound, not just ripple effect, but almost like avalanche effect within the community. Because mm-hmm. for marginalized people to say, whether it's BIPOC, part of the LGBTQIA+, neurodiverse, whatever, people feel misunderstood. They feel like they don't belong. They don't feel safe. They don't feel comfortable. So if you can share as the mental health professional, like, I kind of get it. I don't know the exact scenario of your life, but I kind of get it. You can have those moments like you had at the hospital with that sergeant who came in during George Floyd's murder, and you don't even have to speak about it. You just Mm -hmm. get it. And I think that allows you to break down so many barriers and so many walls within this professional field. Yeah. Creating that safe, inclusive therapy space means everything. So I, I definitely take pride in doing that for each and every person. So I think that, you know, when we talk about these things, that is that is the takeaway. Like, how do I support this client dealing with combined challenges of grief and racism? And then also, are if they're in the military, okay, so they're tough. So they're not going to show emotions because that's not what they were taught to do, you know? And so when you, you catch somebody coming out of retirement and they're trying to navigate family life and stuff like that, it's weird. And they're like, wait, so my wife or my husband complains about me not being present or me not feeling anything. And it's like, oh, okay. So I gotta, I gotta help you know what emotions are. I mean, show showing an emotional chart to some of my people who are who want to know more like it has been a game changer because they're like wait so content can be under happiness oh I don't like it <laughs> you know so and I've, I've struggled with that myself so it's it's interesting that I mean you know we just create that openness to to have a broader understanding I love that yeah, it's almost like deprogramming some things in some ways too. And then just like mm-hmm. reteaching these fundamentals yeah. where it's like this stuff has gotten lost because you had to you had to bury it in order to perform or do your job or do your duty. Um, Absolutely. This, man, this has been one of my favorite conversations in a long time. And, awesome. <laughs> uh, I just want to say again, I appreciate you sharing and being open and, and just being vulnerable and being real because I think that's what we strive for here. And I'm really excited to meet you next month in person. Yeah. Um, I'm excited for what you're going to be creating and putting out to the world because like we said, what if you don't talk about it? What if you don't share it? What if it doesn't exist? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm excited to meet you as well next month. I think that it's going to be the, the missing piece of all the like structure that I need. And I think after that, I'm going to take off running. 
no pressure on my end then. Great. Um, <laughs> I mean, they say, you know, you got to crawl to walk to run. That was like one of our things. Um, so I've, I've been, I've been walking. So I think I'm ready to run. I'm to run. Okay. <laughs> well, challenge accepted. Um, please tell the audience where they can find more of what you're doing and, and how to follow you or how to find your stuff. So my website is mindsetqualityllc.com. And I try to keep it updated with anything new that I come out with. And my Facebook and my Instagram is also on there connected. So you can just click it. But on Facebook, I'm Mindset Quality. On Instagram, somebody took it. So I'm Mindset Quality Therapy. <laughs> and yeah, so any, I was like, well, they're not even using it, but <laughs> whatever. And um, also on TikTok, I'm Mindset Quality as well. So, um, and if you forget all of that, you can just find it on my website. I'm also getting ready to launch. Um, I'm, I'm calling it Freedom Found. It's a veteran's EMDR intensive. So breaking free from veteran related PTSD. And I want to teach them that, you know, it doesn't have to stay this way or even first responders too, but you know, we talked about that niche thing. <laughs> so, but they fit under the category. They experience some of the same, some of the very same struggles of in, invisible wounds of PTSD and feeling trapped by their experiences. So I'm going to be rolling that out pretty soon. And hopefully it takes and I'm able to keep doing great work with EMDR. Sounds amazing. And I hope for those of you who are listening, if that feels applicable or you have someone in your life that you can share this with, I highly recommend sharing Ariel's resources. I think uh, these are invaluable and so needed. So really cool stuff. All of that will be in the show notes so that you have easy access to it too, in case yes. you just can't listen and write at the same time like myself. <laughs> and... <laughs> Thanks I again. think, um, so also I wanted to offer like when, on the air date, I wanted to offer my book for free that day. So when cool. we talk about that, I'm going to put in the, the Amazon code. So that day it will be free and it's called holding space on Amazon. You can type in holding space, Ariel Jordan, or you can go to my page and it will be there. It's a very generous offer. So we will make sure that is included so everyone has access to that. Really cool stuff. Really great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope it was a stress-free experience to some extent. <laughs> it was. It was very stress-free. I do feel like I was being myself. <laughs> I feel like I was able to be myself. It's a safe space. That's what we aim for here. So you did a great job. Thanks Thank for coming you. on and thanks for sharing your story. Thanks, Patrick. And to everyone listening to the All Things Private Practice podcast, new episodes are out every single Saturday on all major platforms and YouTube. Like, download, subscribe, and share. Doubt yourself. Do it anyway. We'll see you next week. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.